Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Uh, my mom was in her early 20s. I've shared some of this story before. When she was told that she had an incurable eye disease, the doctor <clears throat> um, basically described this disease as this arthritic condition. It had a very specialized name. I can't remember what it was. Behind her left eye. She first noticed, she told me even last night, vision problems in her left eye at the age of 14 while living in rural Gooding, Idaho. It was now the early 80s. How many of you missed the 80s? Kind of missed the 80s. Big hair and I loved it. And Karate Kid. How many love Karate Kid? All-time favorite. It was now in the early 80s. And she was living in Portland, Oregon. A 20-something mom of three beautiful children. The oldest of which was just really handsome. He was renowned for his beautiful red hair. But her fear had become more profound after meeting with this ophthalmologist. Uh, it wasn't her fear was not driven by would she be able to drive or go to the grocery store or, or even would she be able to do grown-up things. Her fear was that she would not be able to see her children grow up. Then one Sunday at church, kind of like this, as my mom and dad were worshiping, the worship leader started to sing a song. How many of you enjoy worship? This song, according to my mom, radiated with, with hope in the presence of Jesus. The chorus was really simple. God heals blind eyes. So my mom told me last night that something happened to her in that moment. She called it, and these are his, her words, she called it a quickening of faith. Basically, this is how I define it. She had this assurance that God was, in that moment, healing her eye. In a worship service, no one called her out. No preacher man said, hey, someone out there is going to be healed of an eye disease. She simply had this quickening in an atmosphere of worship like today that God was going to heal her left eye that was being deconditioned by arthritis. Well, two months went by and nothing happened. Nothing, until she went to her ophthalmologist. And what she told me, she told me this again last night, was nothing short of of remarkable. And what I mean by remarkable, it was a remarkable miracle that took place, but it was also remarkable in that it was really unremarkable. The doctor went through kind of the routine eye exam. There was no beam or shaft of light. There, There was no, the building didn't shake, the lights didn't flicker, signifying that the power of God was moving, really unremarkable. The doctor simply used that. I didn't even know what the name of the the gadget is, but if you've been to an eye doctor before, an optometrist or ophthalmologist, the gadget they use to measure your eye eye sight, and it's really, every time it happens to me, I fall asleep almost. They they click, you know the click? One, two, three, two, one. You're like, oh, I can't stay awake, right? So as he was 
using this gadget to measure eyesight, the ophthalmologist was shocked. My mom's left eye in that moment could see a 2025 vision. It was a miracle. That was impossible. Her eye was deteriorating. I don't know what her vision was before, but it wasn't even close to 2025. So the question that we have to ask ourselves today is, was that just simply a cosmological fluke, right, in the, in the space-time continuum in which we inhabit? Or was that a miracle of God? And I'd like to explore that a little bit. And here's the thing. And because of that, my mom was able to see her kids not only grow up and play sports and do recitals and get in trouble and fight constantly and finally mature and get married. She was able to see her kids give her 10 grandchildren and she can still see great out of her left eye. 10. I have contributed seven, so I am her favorite. Come on, Tracy. How many want to pray uh, for Tracy that God would give her triplets? Oh, I would just, oh man, that would be amazing. We call this a demonstration of God's power. Do we believe this anymore? I remember another story of a good friend of mine. I won't elaborate. His name was Casey. This was about 20 years ago. We were in a worship experience like this. He came up to the front at the, at the end of the sermon and he just had that same faith that God was going to do something. He had lived for a long time, and I'm trying to recollect exactly the condition that he had, but it was something of a chronic respiratory issue. It was hard for him to breathe. He came up, and I remember we were praying for him, and I remember the look in his eyes. It scared me, and I think it scared him. He instantly felt something different in his lungs, and from that moment on, he was free from that chronic respiratory condition. Is that a flu? Or is that a miracle? In a more dramatic fashion, you still with me? A woman known as Lady Julian, you probably have heard of her before, who lived in this English town of Norwich in the early part of the 14th century came down deathly sick. The town had an outbreak of the plague which had swept through Europe. Three days after Easter, when all hope was lost, her priest finally visited her. And he said these words to her, look at Jesus and be strong. At first, because uh, she was unable to even move, the room went dark and she thought, in her own words, she thought it was over. But then instantly, like someone turning on the lights, the pain was gone. For 12, for 12 hours, Jesus spoke to her, and he showed her a tiny ball the size of a hazelnut and said, it stands for everything that has been made and everything that will be made resting in the hand of God. And then Jesus said to her, don't be afraid. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. I remember this account of Quadratus. He wrote in the early part of the second century, maybe circa 125 A.D., and he personally, and this is just so fascinating, I had this conversation with my father, he personally knew, and Dr. Stan would know more about this than I, our, our resident historian, personally knew people who had been healed by Jesus. 
And this is in his words. He said, but the works of the Savior were always present, for they were true. Those who were cured, those who were raised from the dead, who had not only appeared as cured and risen, but were constantly present, not only when the Savior was living, but even for some time after he had gone, so that some of them even survived to our own time. Does God heal today? Do we believe in the demonstration of God's power? Here's the thing. Christianity is not about talk and nice sermons. It is about the demonstration of God's power in order to heal bodies and brains, to heal shame, to break the power of profound addictions in your mind and your body, to set you free from the dark cosmic powers that have terrorized you. That is the demonstration of power, which eventually includes the entire expanse of what we now call the cosmos. Unfortunately, modern day, and I can say this because I'm a pastor and I'm, I love the church so much, but this is just my perspective. You can certainly disagree with this, but unfortunately, the modern day, modern day Christianity seems to be more about talk and more about sermons and more about books and more about songs, but much less about power. We have an appetite for the books and the songs and the sermons, but do we have an appetite for the power of God? I think in many ways, we're just way too sophisticated for that kind of stuff. I won't get off on that tangent, but the modern church, and I say this with respect, resembles more of a, I've said this before, a domesticated corporate conglomerate offering goods and services to their customers like Target than the early church, which was energized by the power of God who had his people march into the world, healing the sick, loving the unlovable, serving the en- all the enemies, and speaking courageously to the powers of wicked darkness and on and on and on. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 says, Paul says, you've read this many times before, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. First Corinthians chapter 4 says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. I'm tired of talk, TED Talks. Talk, talk, talk. And I believe in the primacy of preaching, but man... The kingdom of God is not just talking. The kingdom of God consists in power. I know I'm opening myself up to a lot of misinterpretations. But as I've said before, I'm a big boy, and you can misinterpret me as much as you want. What I'm not saying, let's all, let's now go on some foray or some adventure of, of fanaticism, right? Let's go into the mountains and act like strange hillbilly people. And seek the power of God. That's not what I'm suggesting. It's just funny how we caricature the power of God. I have many quotes that I could talk about um, related to that, but I, I do need to move on. Now, how did the modern church get to this point? Now, that question is kind of like uh, you and I go into a buffet. How many of you enjoy buffets? Yeah. It's kind of like you and I go into the buffet and it's asking yourself the question, okay, where do we actually start? Do we start with the roast? Do we start with the turkey? Do we go to the salad bar? Have you ever been confused? Do I, actually, do I just start with the ice cream and just get it all over with? 
and then maybe go to the salad. I don't know. Like, there's so many different thoughts that, and this would take, you know, years and years and years to flesh this out. But I'm just going to give you one thought today that's related to how the modern church has come to the, has come to this present moment, which, wherein we have domesticated um, Christianity uh, to such a point where we only talk about the power of God, but we don't experience or expect the power of God. Now, I promise I'm not going to get into the historical weeds too much today, but let me just begin. I think we've been schooled to believe, according to one scholar, that the natural world called all, all things physical, everything from majestic mountain ranges to pavement, okay, and all the stuff in between, is reductively subject to the laws of physics, chemistry, astronomy, biology, zoology, botany. Basically, and there's nothing else. That's it. We just have these laws. The implicit narrative that we inhale every day from Netflix to the New York Times is that we live in a universe determined by indifferent mechanisms of chance rather than a world designed by God whose dream is to feel, fill or flood creation with his glory. And because we just kind of assume and we inhale this, maybe on an unconscious level, this, this assumption that this world is defined by mechanisms of chance, we have the, the great Scottish philosopher David Hume saying, or declaring that miracles don't happen because they cannot happen. That is the world that we live in. In other words, we've been trained to think in ways foreign to the biblical story. And that's why for the biblical story, for many of us, it's strange. Because we live in a modern world and we're trying to interpret the Bible from, a, from, a, from, a secular, from, from secular assumptions. In other words, we, I mean, many of you don't know this, but you are a walking, talking, raging materialist. You've been trained to think as a flat earther. What I'm not saying is all of you think that the, the world is flat. If you think that, you need help. Some of you actually think that. I can feel it in the room. Okay. <laughs> the point that I want to make is that by saying raging materialism, I'm not saying, oh, you spend too much money on stuff. I'm not talking about economic materialism. When I say we're wretched, flat earthers, I'm not talking about, hey, we just believe the world is flat. No, what I'm saying is we, we no longer believe that we live in a system that is filled with different dimensions. God, in other words, does not exist. There's nothing outside of us. We live in a closed system. What has happened is that the dominant consciousness of many Christians, I believe this to be true, you can disagree with me, that's fine, is agnostic. The dominant, let me say that again, the dominant consciousness of many Christians is agnostic. Right. We don't say we're agnostic, yeah. we function every day as agnostics. Yeah. We're on the fence. Right. Sundays, we're really convinced that God exists. But Monday through Friday, we're not sure. Saturday, football's on, so hey, we're kind of living the dream. You know what I mean? And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just trying to describe where we are at. One scholar said that the whole world right now is doubting Thomas. And there's so much more I could get into that, but I can't. Unfortunately, the softer version of this agnosticism, I'm going to call it religious deism or Epicureanism, this afflicts the imagination of so many Christians. We imagine a great spiritual a distance between us and God. God is, you know, located somewhere six billion light years away from us and then hang a left. Right? 
However, when we come to all four gospel biographies, they form a powerful rebuke to this raging materialism which closes us off to the creator. Jesus, when he announced the good news of the kingdom, he did not say, guys, guess what? The kingdom of God has arrived. Now we can go off and fly off as disembodied souls to a non-spatial temporal place. You don't see that in the Bible. What you see when Jesus announced the good news of the kingdom is that Jesus heals the sick. He raises the dead. He cares for the poor. He feeds the hungry crowd with two loaves or a few loaves and a couple fish. He walks on water. You see, Jesus is transforming the material world, matter itself. Jesus is claiming a sovereign rule over this world from the dark cosmic powers that have disfigured it. In other words, Jesus is healing and declaring war over the wicked powers that have taken his world through sin. So now we come to our passage that Sal read earlier in John. This passage provides the basis for our expectation of the power of God. So did I go too far in the historical weeds? No. Okay. Now... (laughs) Now I'm going to go into the theological weeds, (laughs) but I promise I'm trying to make all my messages way more simple. I get a lot of emails, make it more simple. Okay. I'm going to make it more simple. (sighs) One day I'm going to bring my full brain and all of its complexity to you. Okay. And we will hand out aspirin and Tylenol first. In the passage that we read out of John, John declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Now, let me, let me just say this again. This passage provides the basis for our expectation of the power of God. Okay, so keep that in mind. John declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we read. John is essentially saying or alluding that Jesus is the Passover Lamb or the scapegoat Lamb. The Passover Lamb essentially uh, was for a function, we'll say it this way, functioned as an agent who cleansed the world or the people of God from its pollution. The Passover land stood in for the people and absorbed the transfer of all the tension, all the weight, all the sin, all the pollution of the people. It took it, right, and held on to it. That's what the Passover lamb and the scapegoat figure, which I've talked extensively about before, did. So, One way to describe Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's hard for us to understand, even biblically speaking. Let's use just a modern kind of metaphor. Let's think of a water purifier. As I've said this before, what I love about water purifiers, you can take polluted, chemically filled water, put it in your purifier, and what happens? It holds on to the toxins, it holds on to the pollutants, and what does it do? It releases fresh water to you. This is what I think Jesus did on the cross through his death. He took the toxins and the pollutants, all the shame, all our failures, all our sin, all our wickedness, all our pride, everything that has destroyed our lives, decimated our lives, held on to it, took it, and then released life. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the scapegoat. 
and this is so important, that cleanses the world of its pollution. You've got to think of the world as a cosmic temple. John, in his prologue, in John chapter 1, says that Jesus tabernacled among us. He is the new temple figure through his death will cleanse the world and forgive his people of their sins. Why is that so important? Well, then John tells us, so that the Holy Spirit can come. I just, I, I really want to go off on a, a parenthetical rabbit hole trail. But I can't. But the Holy Spirit could not come when the world was contaminated. So John then, this is so fascinating, in verse 33, defines the ultimate purpose of Jesus' death as the Passover lamb, not as a new way into heaven, Rather, John tells us that Jesus' mission is to baptize the world, in particular God's people, with the Spirit. All the synoptics say the same thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke say the same thing. They say, John looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but said, Here is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But we don't think of it like that. We think of that as a, we we pass through that statement. We think it as, I used to think of it as an odd, bizarre way of describing or defining the raison d'etre, or the purpose of Jesus' mission. Are you, when I was younger, I'm like, how does that even relate to heaven? Aren't we, isn't Christianity about you know, going to a disembodied place called heaven? No. The purpose of the death and burial and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus was not to settle the historical debate about life after death. It was to baptize the world with his spirit. It was to launch the new age of the spirit prophesied by Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, Daniel, Zechariah. I could go on and on and on. Of course, let me just say this as a qualifier. Jesus came to forgive the sins of the world. Of course, through his death, he rescued his people from enslavement to the dark powers. But that was in order to baptize us with his spirit. Makes you want to go, hmm. When the spirit, as the prophets believed, when the spirit was poured out, the spirit ushered in, and this is important for us to understand, ushered in the realities of heaven. In other words, the future world of new heavens and new earth and all that goodness was dramatically brought forward into the present. It's a weird time space thing. Don't even try to get your head around that. The prophets believed for the spirit is the full reality, reality, the dynamic and atmosphere of heaven, and it's given to God's people. So the purpose of Jesus was not simply to forgive us of our sins so that we could be nice people and wait for 90 years, maybe 102 years, and then die and go to heaven. No, the purpose of the Spirit was to baptize us 
or the purpose of Jesus, excuse me, was to baptize us with the Spirit to launch the new age of God's brand new world defined by the demonstration of the power of heaven. John continues. He tells us in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 38, he gives us his account of the Feast of, of Tabernacles. And um, if you don't know this, on the last day of the festival, there was a water-drawing ceremony which always took place whereby a high priest would take a golden pitcher and draw water from it from the pool of Siloam. It is at this point that Jesus cried out, and it's famous, we know this in John 7, cries out and says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. But there's a problem here. The his here should be translated Messiah. And the passage should read, Jesus cried out, of the Messiah's heart will flow rivers of living water. So again, John is reinforcing what he stated in his prologue that the purpose of Jesus is not just to forgive, in his death and burial and resurrection, is not just to forgive us of our sins. It is. But it is to baptize us with the realities and the environment and the power of heaven. Jesus, the baptizer of the gift of the Spirit, culminates at the cross in John's gospel. In agony, as Jesus was on the cross, he cries out again, and he says, it is finished. And John tells us, bowing his head, he delivered up the Spirit. The gospel, remember, the gospel of John started with the phrase, in the beginning, now it comes to a defining close with Jesus' declaration, it is finished. In the words of one scholar, John, what he does is, is what uh, adds what most English versions translates, he gave up his spirit. We read that as a euphemism for death. Jesus bowed his head and died. That's not how John wants us to interpret that. John uses a Greek word which does not refer to a loss or giving up, but rather to a passing on or delivering over. The reference to pneuma or the spirit does not mean his spirit, but to the spirit. In other words, what John is saying throughout his theological masterpiece is that Jesus died for the sins of his people as the Lamb of God so that he could give his people the Spirit and baptize this old, stinking, corrupt world filled with Raider fans <laughs> with the new age of the Spirit. John's, and I said this like a couple minutes before, but John's theological masterpiece reinforces the entire goal of Jesus' mission. It is to baptize us in the Spirit, into God's power. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 5 says this. If you guys can get that up for me. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. 
The coming or the baptizing of the Spirit is the launch of God's brand new world. We call this inaugurated eschatology. But with the coming of the Spirit is the coming of the activity, the dynamic, the power, and all the goodness of heaven itself. Are you hearing me this morning? And it's so important for us to understand. So John provides the basis for our expectation for believing that the demonstration of God's power to set us free from addictions and eye diseases and chronic conditions and issues with our family, mental health problems. I could go on and on and on, right? That is to be expected as the people of God living in the 21st century. Let me just say a few things before I give us just some practical thoughts. First, the Holy Spirit, and it's so important for us to understand, and I didn't have time to, I don't have time to fully flesh this out for us today, but, but the Holy Spirit is not a power. Can I get an amen to that? The Holy Spirit is not some unconscious force that one can manipulate for good or evil. We do not live in a Star Wars cosmos where Jedis bend the force according to their own purpose. All right, so the Holy Spirit is not like some Jedi Zen Buddhist thing. The Holy Spirit is, and I'll get to this point, is a person. Second, the Holy Spirit is not an experience. That's a little bit redundant. Uh, Everything is an experience, right? Watching Monday Night Football tomorrow night at 6.15 is an experience. (laughs) Everything's an experience. Right now is an experience. We we just, it's, it's, it's a little, it's kind of a tautology, but I'll move on. What I'm trying to say is the Holy Spirit is not holy entertainment we can use like Apple TV or Netflix consumers. The power of God is not something for our private enjoyment cut off from serving and loving other people. If, 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 the power, if, if our pursuit of the power of God is cut off from loving and serving other people, we turn into fanatics. Third, the Holy Spirit is a person who shares in the eternal being of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is fully God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So my question here is today now as we get back into the demonstration of God's power as connected to the reality of living in relationship with the Holy Spirit is does your life today reflect the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you tasted of the goodness and the powers of the age to come? Does your life match what we see in the book of Acts? Is, is our life filled with the reality and the, and the dynamic and the atmosphere of heaven? That doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. does not mean that we're not going to go through very hard times. We certainly will. Can I get any man to that? But in those moments, we can certainly experience the power and the fullness and the reality and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our life. So think about that question. Does your life reflect what Jesus did 2,000 years ago by baptizing us into the Spirit? I would say with so much love and respect. I think many Christians, not at this church, you guys are just owning it. 
But most Christians out there would say, yeah, Chris, I want more. My life, my life is not reflecting what you just talked about as it relates to the demonstration of God's power. And yes, Chris, I don't want to use God's power as a way to manipulate things for my own good. This is not about, oh, I could just be more prosperous. I don't want to use the Holy Spirit for my own therapeutic self-actualization. No, I think many Christians out there who really love Jesus, I think they, if, they, if they were really honest, they would say, yeah, this is really not a part of my life. Well, if you want this, it's good news. And there's no shame here today. There's no judgment. But if you want this, I have a few points that are borrowed from one pastor, and I will use some of his language and some of my language, and then we'll end and then we'll pray. If we want to experience more of the demonstration of God's power, not just on a Sunday, but in our lives as followers of Jesus, we should start with hope. The world, guys, needs hope. I mean, we have, it's, it's called panic porn. You go to news and it's all about how you will die in about 35 different ways. You go to WebMD, guys, it's over. Don't do it. Do not go to WebMD. Right? It's, it's the apocalyptic news cycle where it's just, it's nuts. You just go from one thing to the next to the next, and it's all about how everything is a catastrophe. We're not denying the reality of, of evil in our world and sickness and suffering, but our world cannot offer any hope. This is why secularism, as we know it, it doesn't feel like it right now, but I'm telling you the truth. The foundations of secularism or secular assumptions are crumbling right now. They have no answer to suffering. They have no answer to what is going on right now in our current moment. So as Christians, what should we do? We should start by hoping. In the words of one pastor, he said, healing starts with hoping. Because hoping is imagining a world where you're no longer addicted to porn. Where you're no longer addicted to lust and greed. Where you're no longer addicted to things that deform your mind, your heart, your body. Healing starts with hoping. So what is hope? Hope is three things. It's a triad. The first thing, hope is an expectation that good will come from God in the future. That is hope. Hope is an expectation that good will always come from God in the future. One of my all-time favorite quotes comes from N.T. Wright. He says, many of us think that we are a shadow of our former selves. That is wrong. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a shadow of your future self. Hope is an expectation that God will bring good in the future. Two, it's trusting God no matter what in the present. Is that, has that been hard? Irrespective of what you're going through or what the world is going through, we not only expect that good will come in the future, we have hope in this world because God will bring good. 
we also can trust God in the present because we know that God is what? Good. We trust God in the present because we know his character. He's a God of grace, compassion. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the formulaic way that the Old Testament described God's character. He is faithful. That is why you can trust him in the present. The third aspect of hope is learning to be patient and waiting on God on a promise when it seems like it is taking way too long. That's where I've been in. God has been teaching me a lot about patience. Let me say this um, about hope. I got to go to my phone and find this. Here it is. One scholar says, hope is more than a feeling. Hope is more than an experience. Hope is more than foresight. Hope is a command. Obeying it means life, survival, endurance, standing up to life until death is swallowed up in victory. It is a command. We are, we are commanded to hope. And as we hope, that is when our lives begin to open up to the realities of fresh acts of God and the demonstration of his power. Number two, are you desperate? Are you desperate? See, pre-pandemic days, I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't think the church was all that desperate. I think we were kind of just swimming in kind of this easy American self-complacency. We didn't take evil seriously. We didn't take our mission seriously. And I know I'm generalizing here, but we were just kind of going with the flow, right? After the pandemic, I think it red-pilled us. And now we're seeing things like we've never seen before. And my question for you today is, are you desperate enough to see God move in your life. And the desperation that I'm talking about is not like, oh, we're drowning in the middle of an ocean and, oh, we're desperate. No. The desperation that I'm talking about is, I'm talking about is formed around, are we going to be faithful to who God has called us to be in this present moment? You see what oftentimes in the words of one pastor, what drives us to the power of the Holy Spirit is a confrontation with our own powerlessness. I think the reason why before the pandemic we weren't that desperate is because we thought we were in charge. Thank God for good science. Thank God for good doctors. We have incredible doctors in this room. Thank God for good medicine. Thank God that we live in the greatest nation that in, in the history of the world. And we, you don't want to take that lightly. But I think what happened is the pandemic unfroze us out of this kind of complacency and showed us that, wow, we are way more fragile than we thought we were. For me, I know what has happened through my, and I've kind of documented what I've been through over the last few years, what I've, or last year and a half, what I've experienced just with being sick and some of the different things I've gone through 
it has created this desperation for the Holy Spirit to move, not just in my life, but in the life of the church. My own radical sense of powerlessness, when my body doesn't want to do what it used to do, has created an insatiable desire for us as a church to not only experience the power of God for ourselves, but to bring the power of God through self-giving love to the world. That's what I want. I want people to experience the power of God. Are you desperate for the power of God? Number three, do we have a high expectation? Do we have a high expectation? Remember, what did Jesus look for as I close? What did Jesus look for when he went around healing the sick? He looked for people who believed. <laughs> he, did, he did heal people that didn't have belief. We'll get into that. But he mostly, and, and it's a mystery, he looked for people who trusted in him. Yeah. Do we have a high expectation when we come to church? Yeah. I, I just, honestly, I, I kind of get the impression we don't expect much anymore. We expect a pretty good message. We expect some good music that gets us charged up for the week. We expect some good fellowship, hanging out with some good people right afterwards. And then we expect to go home. I, I want to change that app, that culture. I, I want you to come with a high expectation. And you got to choose this. You can't feel your way into this. you got to choose your way into this. you got to believe in spite of how you feel that, man, when I come to church on Sunday, God's going to move. He's going to move in the prayer room when we pray. He's going to move in our kids' ministry. As wonderful volunteers are teaching our kids, he's going to move in the lobby in mysterious ways. He's going to move in our, our worship experience. He's going to move as the word is being preached. He's going to move in our lives, not just on Sunday, but he's going to move throughout our week. Do we expect that? Do we have a high expectation for that? I remember, I don't remember who, who it was, but there was a, a pastor who God really speaks through and and uh, many documented healings has taken place through his ministry. And someone came up to him and said, okay, what's the secret to God working through you? And he goes, well, man, this is really not a secret. I'm not special. He goes, I just wake up every day. I just have this very high expectation that God is going to work through me. I'm shocked when it doesn't happen. Because I know the character of God. I have a very high expectation. Do we have that high expectation? Lastly, again, this is all tied to um, the power of God and, and believing God's power to flow through us. I think, to be honest, one of the things that keeps us from the demonstration of God's power is our low tolerance, and these are not my words, a low tolerance for disappointment. I find myself in this one. I've been in ministry for 25 years. I've prayed for a lot of people. Some have been healed, some haven't. And if I'm not careful, I gotta guard my heart. If I'm not careful, I can develop a low tolerance for disappointment with God. And that disappointment, if I don't, if I don't, 
put it in check. Everyone say, put it in check. If I don't put it in check, it can begin to color my expectation on Sundays. And I'm just not going to do it. I'm declaring war over me. I'm declaring war over this church when it comes to this low tolerance for disappointment. And I'm going to talk about when in here soon when God doesn't answer your prayers. I'm going to talk about that because I think there's some, many of you have questions about, hey, I prayed for someone and they didn't get, they didn't get healed. We'll talk about that. But right now I want to, I want to address and I want to declare war on just this low level tolerance for disappointments. We just, we just expect people not to be healed. We just expect our lives not to be changed. We just expect not to really hear from God. We expect, not to, we expect not to be delivered from our sin patterns. We expect not to be delivered from this particular addiction. We expect not, 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 not. Oh my gosh. That is not what Jesus died for. So we're going to pray for the sick. And we're going to continue to pray for the sick. And we're going to pray for the attic. And we're going to continue to pray for the attic. We're going to pray for those who are far from God. And we're going to continue to pray for those who are far from God. And we're not going to give up because we are people of hope. We believe that good things are going to come. And we're going to trust God in the present because he is a good and faithful God. And we know we're not God. We're not self-generating autonomous creatures. And we know it's God who is in charge. And yes, there are some things that are a mystery. You know why some things are a mystery? Because you're a creature and you are finite and you are limited. The good news is we serve a God who is unlimited, who is radically free and is not limited to space and time and sickness and death and plagues. God can do what God wills to do. With God, all things... With God... All things are possible. So as we close, does your life, does your life line up to what we find in Scripture? Does your life line up with the demonstration of God's power? If not, can I pray for you? Bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm desperate, not because I'm out of faith this morning, and this is like our last shot. I'm desperate, which is formed by what I think we all have collectively gone through over the last year and a half or so. I am desperate for the demonstration of God's power. Why? Because I know that Jesus, through his death, inaugurated a brand new world, baptized us with his spirit. And we are called to taste of the powers and the goodness of the age to come. The demonstration of God's power is fundamental to the life of a Christian. And if you want more of that, not more of that so we can use the power of God in a manipulative way, not more of that so we become fanatics, not more of it so we can use God as some sort of force or entertainment for our own private pleasure or whatever. No, 
today you are desperate for more of God's power and presence in your life because you are hungry to be faithful. You are hungry. You are hungry for God and you're hungry because you want to be faithful to who God's called you to be. If you're desperate for that, I'd like you to stand up and I want to pray for you. bow your heads, close your eyes. So standing, take your hand, put on your heart. Father, I thank you that you said those who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all these things shall be added unto us. Lord, we want a bigger appetite for you, for your kingdom, your righteousness, your justice, your truth. We want to live in your wisdom. We want to live in your love. And we want to walk in your power. Today, as we stand, we are declaring, everyone say declare. We are declaring an act of war against apathy, against low expectations, we're declaring war and just kind of going through the motion on Sundays, but even more so throughout our week. We declare war against that dominant consciousness of agnosticism, as if God is somewhere six billion light years away and hang a left and he's somewhere there, just not really concerned about our lives. We declare war against those ideas. They are not truth. The devil is a father of lies and he's been lying to the church from the very beginning. But I thank you. Lord, our desire is to be faithful, to serve the city, to love the city, to break the division in our city, to build for the kingdom of God in this city, to love our neighbor, to be a witness of the good, the good news of Jesus to all the people in this city. Our desire is to see God heal the sick, raise the dead, our desire is to care for the poor and feed those who are hungry. Come on, somebody. Our desire is to break the power, not in our own strength, but through the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, which is derivative, break the power of the cosmic darkness in our region. In other words, our desire is to be faithful to you. And I thank you that you have baptized us already in the power of the Spirit. Now I just ask, Holy Spirit, you would come and fill us up. Amen. Come and fill us up. Fill us up. Shake the room. Shake our lives. Shake our mindsets. Set us free from any thought, and there's thousands of them, that could keep us from all that you have that could keep us from tasting of the powers and the goodness of the age to come. 
Lord, we thank you that the spirit of God is the reality and the activity and the environment and the reality of new heavens and new earth. And we thank you that the spirit of God has been inaugurated. And so we just say, no matter how we feel this morning, could you just lift up your hands now, church? We just say yes to a refilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We say yes to the healing of broken bodies. We say yes to the healing of chronic diseases. We say yes to the power of God being demonstrated through the breaking of powerful addictions. We say yes to the breaking of sin patterns. Come on, somebody. We say yes to the breaking of anxiety and mental health issues and fear in the mind of every believer and non-believer that would set foot in this room. Lord, we thank you that whom Jesus has set free is free indeed. We thank you where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and there's freedom from enslavement to anxiety and fear and greed and lust and anger and rage and all the things that deform our lives and cut us off from you, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and do what you want to do. Say what you want to say in Jesus' name. I feel like right now, I've, yeah, you can clap. I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your clap. Last thing, and then we'll worship. I think we need to worship. Last thing is your eyes are closed. I feel like this is what the Holy Spirit just gave me. It's a picture that he gave me. It's like when Isaac was going around and digging up wells. I just feel like we're digging up a well this morning. A well that has been, I don't know, it's been, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's uh, been closed. That's all I can think of. Clogged, closed, yeah, whatever. And um, I see the Holy Spirit coming. It's just a simple picture. Much like Isaac, when he would go around and he would look for water, and then he would dig a well, and then his enemies would come, Abimelech, and some other people would come, and then they would um, fill up that well and, and, and stop it. I feel like over the past few years, we've dug up some wells, and the enemy has come in our lives and have, has tried to stop it, put a cap on it. I just feel like today that the Holy Spirit is removing that cap. It's almost like digging up all the rocks. And now I see the Holy Spirit flowing like a river in our lives. It's Ezekiel 47, right? It's the flowing of the river out of the eschatological temple where the water flows out of the temple for the healing of the nations. I see that happening in this church. God's going to pour out his spirit. Are you ready for this, guys? He's going to begin to pour out his spirit in extraordinary ways in our lives. He's going to untap that well. But let me just say this. This is not for us or just for us. This is for the healing of our city. And just like how the river flowed out of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, and just like the river that flowed out of the temple in Ezekiel 47, I see the river of the Holy Spirit flowing out of this church into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our politics, into our other churches, into, into institutions, into our places of work. See God moving in powerful ways in our city. So we just say yes in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.